Hello, my name is Lindsay Sarah Krasnoff, and I'm here with you for another episode of the Global Sports Conversation podcast series on behalf of CISD and SOAS. I'm joined today by Joe Favorito, Master of Strategic Communications, Marketing, Business Development, and more in the global sports space. Joe, I'm thrilled that you could join us today, and I'm always so inspired and encouraged by what you've done in the international sports space. You've designed a scintillating career from a variety of different angles, wearing many different professional hats including your work with Columbia University's sports management program. But I'm really curious to know, what was your original inspiration? What originally attracted you to the sports place? And today, what keeps you in the game? Thanks, Lindsay. (laughs) I think starting, it's kind of interesting. I mean, there's lots of reasons as to how I got started, but this is just kind of a passion that I've always been involved with. I mean, I would say since I was 10 or 11 or 12, that was quite a while ago, but I knew that there was an interest in something to do with sports. I knew that I wasn't going to be an elite athlete. I learned that very early on, but I played every sport and I always had a curiosity around how the businesses were run. And that kind of led me to being around some very elite athletes when I was very young in high school and then on to college at Fordham University where I did all kinds of things like as a manager of the basketball team. I worked at the radio station. I wrote for the newspaper, knowing that I wanted to be involved in storytelling. And really it became part of the relationships of the people that you met when you were at at university and then afterwards and continued to kind of grow that network. And one thing just kind of led to the other. There really wasn't a plan from day one to say, oh, this is what I want to do someday. But it's really kind of grown over time and it really hasn't ceased in you know almost 35 years. Yeah, that's so inspirational that following your passion can help to take you in a variety of different places. Now, I know that one of the tricks of the trade working in the way that you do is that you never really have a typical day per se, but mm-hmm. could you give us a snapshot? shot of what some of your current work or projects look like so that we have a little bit of a better understanding of what it is that it takes to work in the storytelling space at the global sports level. Well, I think one of the the best examples, I had watched the first episode of The Shop, which is LeBron James's HBO show with various celebrities, and he had Snoop Dogg on. And one of the things that he talked about to keep relevant over the course of a lengthy career in a field like music is to constantly stay relevant. And I think that's part of the beauty of being around a university and working with young people from time to time is you're constantly learning and you're constantly trying to figure out how you can stay relevant in conversations that many people just kind of bypass. I mean, one of the beauties, and I've been on my own now for 11 years, but one of the beauties of that is that you work with various people in various places, and some of it's sport, some of it's entertainment, some of it's investment, and you're constantly learning from each one of them as to how you can improve yourself. And I learned that as much from my 19-year-old son and my 22-year-old daughter and the students I have than I do from you know people who've run broadcast networks, and you have to be a good listener. And I think listening in an era now where many of the leaders of the world, they miss things because no one's listening to the conversation that's going on. Mm -hmm. And you'd be surprised as much as you can listen what people will tell you and then how you kind of build that narrative out. So, you know, as far as the companies that I work with now, it really continues to be a mixed bag. So after 11 years, I've worked with big companies like MGM and Universal and Nickelodeon and Bloomberg and small startups, some of which you've never heard of, some of which kind of do the behind the scenes work. And, you know, I've worked on the Olympic space and probably I think with every league in the United States and then leagues like the Bundesliga and La Liga and, you know, to kind of just help them tell their global story. And I, I don't think it changes much. I don't think it's really ever changed. I, I think the biggest thing is everyone has a story and then trying to figure out how you partner that story with the right people, be they investors 
investors, brands, other people in the community is the best way to try and build this out over time. And, and that's really kind of what I've hopefully been able to do successfully and will continue to do so going forward. Some of the issues that you've seen or observed over the years in translating international and player sports cultures to local audiences. Mm-hmm. And here I'm thinking specifically about some differences between how, say, the Philadelphia 76ers and the New York Knicks, two NBA teams who have very, very local, strong identities, but who today have very international player roster and fan base. What have they done really well? And what are perhaps some bypassed good opportunities that has passed them by in terms of how they tell their story as a local yet global brand? And what lessons can we learn from this? Well, there's a few things. One is, and I think that one of the things that's changed in recent years is that American teams and leagues, and frankly, some of the bigger global teams and leagues have understood that you have to really kind of ingrain yourself into the local culture to be successful. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples of things that have happened over time. One was, I guess it was probably about 12 or 13 years ago, there was a massive partnership announced between the New York Yankees and Manchester United. And the Yankees went into the partnership because George Steinbrenner was traveling in Europe and always saw these interlocking NY hats in various colors all over. And he was amazed how many Yankee fans there were. So they went ahead and they did the deal. And it was one of the first kind of global sports marketing deals. And we see a lot of them now with teams partnering up together on both sides of the Atlantic or both sides of the Pacific. But the deal lasted probably for about a year and it was a tremendous failure. And what they failed to realize was when they started to actually talk to people who had bought the hats with the logo, they had no idea that it was a Yankees logo. They thought it was just a cool NY on the front of their hat and had no affiliation to the team at all. These were just kind of pirated hats that they were buying on the streets of New York or Singapore or Shanghai or Beijing, wherever they were getting them. And it wasn't a connection to the fact that they were fans of the Yankees. It was just because they liked the hat. You know, I think that kind of tone deafness sometimes has slowed process. But I think the good thing about it, especially for mega teams, be they FC Bayern Munich, who's now done a tremendous job in the social space in the United States, or the Sixers or the Jacksonville Jaguars is there's much more listening going on at a high level to figure out how you can kind of tie yourself to a hyper-local fan base in whatever city you want to reach. Now, the biggest thing that's changed in the NBA, especially in the last six months, is the NBA has kind of taken off the shackles for teams to market outside their 90-mile area. So if you were the Sixers at one point, you couldn't market to Baltimore, Maryland. That was part of the Washington Wizards territory. But even more important was you couldn't market if you knew that you had fans in London or Paris or Mumbai because that was outside of your scope. Now you have the ability to set up shop if you want to or to market directly to those fans because of the way the NBA has changed their global marketing initiatives. I think that will change a lot of things going forward for two groups. One, it will help the US teams, leagues and brands market to a larger audience directly. The other thing is, I think it will continue to open up doors for brands that are looking to engage in the United States that haven't been able to do it. And, you know, we've seen that, especially in the airline space with Etihad and Qatar Airways and Turkish Airways being able to market in this country now for the first time. And what are they using? They're using sport because they know that's a commonality for everyone. And they're using sports like basketball and to some extent tennis around the US Open and soccer as the way to kind of market across platforms. And that's become very valuable. And I think that's 
going to continue to grow. Right. And, you know, certainly sports are a common denominator across the globe. It's a unifier in so many ways. And we talk a lot about sports role to help create bridges across cultures um, in informal people to people exchanges that naturally organically occur in and around the sports terrain, whether you're a player talking with one of your teammates or you're a fan or anyone up and down the ladder. There's a lot more conversations going on in this informal sports diplomacy space where you're communicating, representing and negotiating your home culture to someone else through sports. And it also involves a lot of the listening side as well, learning about the other. And I know this is a topic we've spoken a bit about at length and you started to do ever more work in the space, including, I believe it was a women's ice hockey exchange Mm -hmm. earlier this year. Could you just tell us what the highlights of that experience were and how it illustrates the merits of sports diplomacy to help two different cultures learn a little bit more about each other and help to bridge that divide? Well, it actually started, uh, again, through a relationship. A friend of mine named Lee Stacy is one of the senior salespeople at Monumental Sports and Entertainment in Washington. And I would say probably it was about three years ago, through their airline partnership, they were doing a goodwill mission to the Emirates. And there was a skating rink and one of their former players, I think it was Peter Bondra, was doing a little bit of a clinic with some kids. And suddenly this girl came on the ice, dressed in traditional garb with skates on and started skating. And they were blown away that she was interested in what was going on. They started a conversation with her. And lo and behold, she had an interest in hockey and watched it online, wanted to learn more. And through that random interaction, became a partnership with Monumental Sports, the Washington Capitals. And they started to work with the government to fund a program for girls to learn about hockey, the first girls hockey team. Long story short, a couple of years later in March of this year, a friend of mine named John Schwartz, who works with sled hockey and some of the other Paralympic teams, he John works now at the NFL, he was at NASCAR for a long time, reached out to me and said, look, there's this woman who's going to be in New York with these special needs kids playing hockey with these girls who are in New York on a goodwill tour from the Emirates who also play hockey. And I'm like, I can't believe it's the same group. And the girl's name was Fatma. And I had never met her before, although I had written about her. And And by chance, John said, are you going to be in New York on whatever day it was? I think it was a Friday because they're doing kind of these events around and they're going to meet for the first time. So ironically, it was at Lasker Rink on the Upper West Side of Manhattan at the top of Prospect Park, six blocks from Columbia. <laughs> so, you know, again, as luck would have it and the people that you meet over the years, I went to the rink. I met all of them. It was an amazing experience. Tom Laidlaw from the New York Rangers was there as well, former player. And it became this amazing exchange of commonality around a sheet of ice for kids from upstate New York and other places who were getting money, a, a donation from the Emirates for all this equipment that would have cost them millions of or hundreds of thousands thousands of dollars to help them grow. And P.S., one of the students I had at Columbia, a gentleman named Rodrigo Duarte, happened to be going to volunteer at the Special Olympics in the Middle East two weeks later. And he came by and met the girls for the first time and met the sled hockey players. So it became a tremendous opportunity for everyone to meet on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and really help tell a unique story to an audience that had never heard it before. So, I mean, I I think if someone would have said, you know, your ultimate experience is taking special needs kids who play hockey with girls dressed in traditional garb, wearing skates on the Upper West Side of Manhattan in an outdoor rink on a Friday in March, I don't think you would have come up with that scenario, but we did because of the relationships that we have in the unique way 
that sport is able to partner people. Right. And, you know, this speaks a bit to this exchange of knowledge that's very much at the heart of the intersection of sports and diplomacy. So in this particular example, what was that knowledge exchange like? It was really basic. It was skills. I mean, they had the commonality of both sides not being great at hockey, but being pretty good and knowing literally what the goal is. You know, you're able to work with your teammates to move a frozen piece of rubber down a sheet of ice and try and put it into a net, you know, made by metal pipes. That's really the goal. But the teamwork was the thing that came out of it. And the the way that two groups were able to work together because they had a common goal of scoring a, putting a hockey puck in a net and then working together to make sure that everybody was participating was pretty special. And they were doing it, you know, in an activity that is certainly not easy, but something that they were able to use to overcome obstacles, whether that obstacle is challenges that young women face in culture in the Middle East or challenges that special needs kids face when they're involved in every day. I think the biggest thing that came out of it was both sides had an appreciation that they were kind of aspiring to a higher goal and were able to achieve it through sport. You've seen so much, you've done so much. What is one of the biggest benefits you've observed or taken away from working in the global sports space? A tangible benefit that I saw that I couldn't believe. Uh, we played Davis Cup in, um, when I was at the USDA, we played Davis Cup in Zimbabwe in 2000. And we took the team through uh, Tennis Zimbabwe. They wanted to go to some of the inner city slums and some of the places where young people really weren't engaged, but they thought that there was a potential to be engaged. And we took our Davis Cup team of, uh, John McEnroe was the captain, both Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras were on the team. I think our practice partner may have been Andy Roddick at that point, who was 18, but we took them to a rundown neighborhood in Harare, Zimbabwe. And I'll never forget John McEnroe literally seeing all these kids run around tennis courts with no shoes on and took off his shoes as Andre did and handed them to some kids. And the impact on them made them go back to Nike and say, look, we got to do more in this marketplace to figure out how to get just get these kids sneakers, <laughs> not let alone getting them to play tennis. But that was one of the ones that always stands out to me when you think about how a simple impact for something as simple as a pair of shoes, when you have athletes who are really not as, you know, they're focused on what they're doing. They're not really focused on kind of the other things that they can touch. That is probably one of the best tangible examples that I could think of that always stands out was John taking off his shoes and handing them to some 12-year-old kid. And the kid had no idea who John McEnroe was. It was just that this guy was giving him some really nice sneakers. Yeah, and that certainly speaks a lot to a lot of these, you know, positive issues that we always associate with sport. But, you know, certainly there's challenges that come with it as well. And what has been one of the biggest challenges that you've encountered in your sports work? I think there's two. One is education, uh, making sure that people are aware of the entire story that's going on because you can get siloed very easily, especially if you're an athlete focused on one thing and you, you have a lot of enablers around you. And I think part of that is also communication. And then the communication directly to some of the biggest names on the planet, whether they are entertainers or celebrities or politicians, many times they surround themselves with way too many levels. And when you're able to communicate to someone and sit down and talk about their kids or something that they had for lunch, you make it a much more human element. And being able to have that direct communication can really literally almost move mountains because a lot of times, you know, they are paying people or they're surrounded by people who are telling them no, no, no first versus, well, maybe there's a way to get this done. And, you know, we live in a business where you have to be able to show how you can get things done. And I'm not a big meetings person. I think it's, here's the task. Let's figure out what to do and let's figure out how to get the results. You know, you should be in, this is a results-based business, whether it's sports or entertainment. At the end of the day, you know who won and who lost in sports. It's it's very plain to see. But I think that's one of the challenges, especially now getting through kind of the muck to get to the people who actually may want to make an impact on something. And nine out of 10 times, once you get to that decision maker, be he an athlete or a celebrity or a politician, he or 
she is usually more than willing if you're presenting a good case and not wasting their time to get done what needs to get done. And if you had to single out one of the most pressing issues that we should all be trying to come up with some sort of solution to, what would that be? Breaking down silos and working together. I think that's the most important thing. I know when you know, I spent nine years in the NBA and I was amazed that many times the people who were delivering stories at elite levels, be they commissioners or heads of PR, heads of marketing from outside the leagues, rarely ever met. Many of them didn't even know each other, even though the fact that they were, you know, one was on Park Avenue, one was on Madison Avenue, one was on Fifth Avenue. And it amazed me how much you're, you're siloed and just worrying about your world and your world. A lot of times everybody operates in their own drama. We're all in our own drama series. I think the biggest thing is taking a breath and stepping back and saying, is the whole forest on fire or is it just a little tree? And, and I think that comes through effective communication and wanting to learn. I think the other thing when you deal with elite athletes, celebrities, politicians, brands, you're operating from the world of the self-absorbed and breaking that self absorption and, and looking at things and saying, what can I learn and what can I do to take another step forward today, whether it's as a person, a brand, a team, a league, it doesn't matter. That's the biggest challenge that we have. Even with the Women's World Cup, as impactful as it could be, I think that there were a lot of missteps around what it could be going forward. And I also think there there are still way too many angry silos of women's sports versus men's sports, when in reality, it's just sports. You know, I had asked Grant Wall, writer for Sports Illustrated, in a, I sent him a text because he had talked about when we were removing women from Women's World Cup. And I said, it should be removed right now because the World Cup that's coming up, the next World Cup is not the men's World Cup, it's the World Cup. So why can't it be the World Cup every two years? It doesn't matter whether you're men or women or LGBTQ, it doesn't really matter. What it is is elite sports having to be played by one gender at a time versus playing together. And I, I think the breaking down of those walls is the most important thing. Terrific. Well, you know, you keep returning to this issue of learning and lessons. And that brings me to the last question I wanted to ask. What has been the most unexpected thing that you've learned from either working in the global sports world or following it over these years? That's a good question. I think the biggest thing that I've learned is that everybody, like I said before, everybody kind of has their own drama, but when it comes down to it, people want to talk about things that are common to them. And whether that's drinking water, food, how your kids are doing, you know, what sneakers you're wearing, what you followed on Twitter yesterday. When you can find that that common ground, it's amazing how you can relate to people as people. Uh, and I think that's probably the, the biggest challenge that we face when you go out there and, you know, again, you have good people and you're bad people and you have people who aren't interested in talking to you and have walls around them and many people who aren't, you know, choosing those battles to fight and figuring out how you can kind of get everybody to work together is the biggest challenge, but I think it's also the biggest opportunity. And that's the thing that I've seen is you've been able to kind of put together groups who would never, ever have been able to relate to something when you come down to something that's a basic human need. And playing on those emotions and, and using those emotions for positive good is really, really important. Joe Favorito, thank you so much for your time and sharing your experiences and perspectives with us. See you next time for another Global Sport Conversation.